Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for how wonderful you are. Thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for the opportunity to come together tonight and study your word and fellowship with one another and to worship you. Thank you for the blessing to be able to sing songs to you and worship you. Thank you for Jeremy being with us tonight. We pray that you bless him and his message. We pray that you help us to have open hearts to receive your word and to be the people you would have us to be. And please keep him safe as he travels home. We thank you so much for your church. Help us to be faithful to you always. In Jesus' name, amen. We are so glad to have you with us tonight. Thank you for being with us. And if you are visiting tonight, we are uh, very thankful and appreciative that you have chosen to be here with us tonight. And we uh, hope that we can get to know you and make you feel welcome, and we invite you back at any opportunity that you have. And if you have any questions about Oldham Lane or the Bible or anything that we can do to help, please let us know. We're very thankful to have Brother Jeremy Beller with us uh, tonight as uh, we continue in our summer series. Jeremy has been with uh, the Wilshire uh, Church of Christ since 2002 as the congregational minister, uh, taking care of the day-to-day -day ministry opportunities and involvement. So we do some similar things. Along with his ministry at Wilshire, Jeremy serves as an adjunct professor at Oklahoma Christian University. Jeremy grew up in McLeod, Oklahoma, and met his wife, Delana, while they were students at Oklahoma Christian. Delana teaches fourth grade at Oklahoma Christian Academy, and Jeremy and Delana have a son, Keaton, and a daughter, Caden. And we're so thankful to have you with us tonight. Thank you for being here. Guys sound like it's a Wednesday evening. Been at work all day. This is really loud. I'm not used to hearing myself so well. I am blessed to be here. Um, speakers always say this, I'm, I'm honored to be here, I'm blessed to be here. But um, it's an honor to be here. It's always an honor to be invited somewhere. It's always more of an honor to be invited back. Because you know what you're getting this time. So I am grateful to be here. I uh, had a wonderful dinner with the McCurleys, and I appreciate their hospitality. I was going to get up and say some great things about Chris, and then he offended me. Um, sitting there on the front, he doesn't know he offended me. I tried to cover it up. He leaned forward and said, you don't have to use all the time. For one preacher to say that to another, he'd just as well have spit in my face. So get comfortable, I'm going to prove him wrong. I told them over dinner, my wife, my family is, is not with me this evening, and that's unfortunate. We just returned from a trip to Yellowstone Bible Camp, uh, all the way out in Prey, Montana. It was a beautiful place, had a great week. Uh, we made it back home Thursday morning at 1230, uh, last Thursday morning. And so when I was telling my wife that I was coming down here to speak with the church, and she asked, do you want us to go? She asked in such a way that I knew she didn't want to get back in the car, and so I didn't ask her to. But uh, they're back at home. She's teaching a class at Wilshire tonight. Uh, so I'm sorry you can't meet them. They're the best part of my, my life. But thank you again for the invitation. I was here last year, and I was here last year on a Sunday night to kick off the preacher training camp that you have a wonderful ministry 
that I'm grateful you guys do. Last year's sermon was a lot different than this year's sermon is going to be. You see, last year I was invited to speak to a bunch of young men who are planning to begin ministry or wanting to study preaching for the week camp that you guys did. And so I was invited, and Chris was very generous. He said, you can preach on any topic you want. So I preached on the story of Jonah. Jonah is a great VBS book, great deep theology. And, and you probably don't remember the sermon I preached last year. I remember the sermon I preached last year. It was all about Jonah. And God had called Jonah, and, and despite all of Jonah's flaws, Jonah actually knew some things. Jonah actually got some things right. It was kind of a fun sermon. It's kind of a different look at the book of Jonah. Tonight's sermon is totally different. Tonight's sermon is a hard sermon to preach. Because, as you've been studying with other people on Wednesday nights, it is a series on these last words of Jesus. Famous last words. Now, I've been online and I've watched some of the sermons because some of my friends have spoken down here and I wanted to see how they dressed, you know. I wanted to see how they handled the topic. I wanted to see kind of what the audience was like that they were speaking to on Wednesday night. So I've, I've heard some of the sermons and they've talked about the power of last words. David Duncan told a powerful story about how his father gave him the last words, I'm proud of you. I, I saw that. And all of us, if we were to go around the room this evening, could think of probably some conversation we've all had with someone that turned out to be their final words. You don't forget final words. They stick with you. And this evening, out of these seven different sayings that Jesus utters from the cross as his final words, I've been asked to talk about this last statement of Jesus, why. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to Mark's gospel and Mark's telling of this story in Mark chapter 15. In the midst of Mark's telling of the crucifixion of Jesus, it comes to that moment when Jesus utters the only statement Mark records in his gospel from the cross. Mark tells the story this way. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing this, they said, behold, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now it's interesting to note when Mark tells the story, this is the only final statement of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Mark. As you read the four gospel accounts, as Chris and other people have pointed out, there are seven different sayings. And as you read the four different gospels, they choose different ones, at least Luke and John do. For instance, if you read the Gospel of John, John is the one that has that great sentence, that great story of Jesus looking at Mary and saying, Woman, telling John, Behold your mother, 
Behold your son. John is the one that gives you that great statement of Jesus, I thirst. And he's the one that has Jesus saying that profound statement, tetelestai. It is paid in full. It is finished. It's interesting to me that John doesn't tell you this last saying of Jesus. If you give John a little credit, you can understand why. For the entire gospel, I mean, for a gospel that begins with such a powerful, profound statement, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. The same gospel that Jesus repeatedly throughout says, I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You can understand why John would not want to come to the end of his gospel after saying all, that, all of that and having Jesus say, why have you forsaken me? It wouldn't make sense. It would seem dis, discontent. And so you can't really blame John for leaving out this statement of the evening. Luke doesn't tell you either. When Luke tells the story, Luke includes other sayings of Jesus from the cross that neither John or Matthew or Mark include. Luke, for instance, is the one that prays that beautiful statement, forgive them, they don't, they don't know what they're doing. You'll notice that the church begins to echo that language in Stephen's death. Luke is also the one, this isn't on the slide, but Luke is also the one that has the conversation with the other thief. Remember that one? Today you'll be with me in paradise. And then Luke, of course, is the one that includes that statement of Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now again, you can kind of understand why Luke doesn't include this statement of Jesus. Because for the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been using, the Gospel of Luke is kind of built around the prayer of Mary. You remember Mary's prayer? How this beautiful statement of how God raises up the lowly and he tears down the strong. And as you read through the Gospel of Luke, Luke is constantly having Jesus reach out and helping the outcasts. He goes to the women, to the children, to the Gentiles, the Samaritans. And God's grace is reaching out to people at the, at the least expected moment, at the least expected juncture. And it kind of makes sense why Luke wouldn't want to include this statement. How do you have Jesus pronouncing the grace of God throughout, only to come to the end of the Gospel of Luke and cry, Why have you forsaken me? So Luke chooses not to include this statement of Jesus. Now don't get me wrong, I am not in the least suggesting that any of these gospel writers are contradicting or fighting each other over who gets it right. All I'm suggesting is that each gospel writer writes their text in a way to emphasize something. But it's Matthew and Mark that include this statement. Not Luke and John. Matthew and Mark. And for both Matthew and Mark, it's the only statement Jesus utters from the cross. They'll tell you later in their account that with a loud cry, Jesus gave up the ghost. But, but they don't tell you what that cry was. The only words of Jesus uttered from the cross in Matthew and Mark are why. Now again, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, you might understand why Matthew would include this as the final statement of Jesus. 
It is, after all, a reference to Psalm 22. And the entire Psalm 22 seems to unfold in the crucifixion of Jesus. The, the people bargaining for his clothes, gambling for his clothes, and casting lots about his bones being out of joint. And all, all of that's spelled out in Psalm 22. And if you read the Gospel of Matthew, it makes sense that Matthew would include this statement. Because one of Matthew's themes throughout is, it is fulfilled. And Matthew's gospel is heavily driven by making the point that Jesus fulfilled Scripture. He's the guy we've been waiting for. He's the promised Messiah. So when Jesus dies on his cross and Psalm 22 begins to be fulfilled right in front of your eyes, of course you're going to include that one. So for Matthew, Jesus' question of why is an echo of Psalm 22. But Mark, does Mark use this one as the only statement of Jesus from the cross? Well, as you read the entire gospel, we'll come back to Mark. Mark is emphasizing that Jesus is the triumphant king and the suffering servant. And so Jesus' ministry in the gospel of Mark begins with Jesus walking in and casting out demons and, and Jesus confronting every form of evil. I know it's in Matthew and it's in Luke and John, but Mark seems to have a quicker, tighter, more succinct way of telling it, that Jesus is this powerful king of God confronting every evil. But in this moment, it is the utmost experience of suffering. It is something of an emotional, physical psychological crisis. We're familiar with the song, The Old Rugged Cross. It is the emblem of suffering and shame. Sometime read your New Testament and just note how little attention the New Testament actually gives to describing the crucifixion itself. It's remarkable. It's almost told in a sterile sort of fashion. They lashed him. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They made him carry his cross. And even the gospel accounts will say there, they crucified him. Now preachers have for, for years and years spent a lot of time unpacking what crucifixion meant. Lots of people, they say, they tell you, never survived the flogging, the amount of blood, the torn skin. And then the fact that he would be prepared, compelled to carry his own cross, probably just that cross beam, but still after taking the beating that he's taken. And then when they get him there and they lift up the cross and they jolt that thing into the ground, the feeling of every nail pulling on your hand it is the emblem of suffering and shame. And all of that, the physical experience of the flogging, the crown of thorns, carrying the cross, standing there as they thud that cross into, you, into the ground, is, is also to be accompanied with all the other stuff that he's had to experience. He's not slept all night. He's seen his own disciples forsake him. He stood in front of the Jewish leaders who've done everything they can to catch him and to upend his ministry. And now it seems for a moment they've got him. 
He stands in front of Pilate, a Roman puppet, if you will, and he has to face the degrading view of, of being helpless, it appears. And then the crowd's chanting, asking to release Barabbas instead of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, it's a bit of an irony, because you know Barabbas literally means son of God. In the Gospel of John, they ask for the son of God, but not the true son of God. He's been forsaken, he's been spat on, he's been raised in front of a crowd with no clothes on to go by. And now, in this moment of emotional and physical crisis, Jesus says, why? Why, God, have you forsaken me? Have you ever asked why of God? If you ever read the book of Psalms, Psalms is made up of a number of different types of Psalms. You know, think about the average Sunday morning. When you come to church and they lead the song and people lean over, this is my favorite song. We got a happy song, sing and be happy. Have you ever come to church on Sunday morning and you just don't feel like singing and being happy? American Christianity has almost painted faith as in anything other than ecstatic joy and excitement and smiles. Look at the way we come to church on Sunday morning. Your life could be falling apart at the seams. Everything could be, the ground beneath you could be walking, could be sinking, and you walk into church and someone says, how are you, brother? I'm fine. You notice that? What's amazing to me is when you read the book of Psalms, the number of times people of great faith ask that question. Why? Why, God? How long, O Lord? Where? You read Psalm 44, you read Psalm 88, you read Psalm 22. 50% of your book of Psalms is made up of Psalms of lament. Here in this moment of excruciating agony, Jesus says, why? He's not the first one. If you're like me or you've heard other people, you, you can't pray that way. Jesus did. Forsaken. God, why have you forsaken me? That is a strong word. Not why did you leave me alone for a little bit. Not why have you just looked away for a minute. To forsake means to purposefully walk away. In the midst of feeling the, the betrayal and the forsakenness of his disciples and the forsakenness of family and the forsakenness of, of, of friends... Now he's on the cross, and now his question is, God, why have you forsaken me? Like everybody else seems to have forsaken him. One author said, Jesus now experiences the most bitter blow which a religious man can feel, the sense of having been abandoned by God. 
Now, don't look beside you at your neighbor. Just look at me. Have you ever felt that way? Because Jesus did. What I'm trying to show you, at least in the life of Jesus at this moment, is this fairy tale, fake Christianity that says everything is happy and glorious and you can never ask questions was not the kind of faith that Jesus had. I was talking to a friend whose sister was going through breast cancer. And he told her, he said, I want you to go read Psalm 22 and I want you to read some other psalms. And I want you to pray like that. People who go through incredible pain and incredible suffering are shocked to find that people in Scripture could ask God, why? And that's what Jesus does. Jesus knows the plan. He's perfectly aware of the resurrection in three days and what's to follow. But none of the knowledge changes the pain, the human sense of depression, the feeling of abandonment. God, where are you? What are you doing? And my guess is that most people in this auditorium tonight have felt that before. It doesn't always get expressed in prayers. It's expressed in the prophets. You ever read the book of Habakkuk? It begins by asking God why. It's this profound question. But it's not just this moment of emotional and physical crisis. This is a theological crisis to some. Now, again, I told you the Gospel of John tells you that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. How does God abandon God? It's a, it's a profound crisis in one sense. Of, it's a crisis to the, to the form of Christian faith you hear today. Maybe if Jesus had just read this book, things would have gone better for him. Jesus just missed the point that this is his best life yet. No. Now this is God's plan. Or how many of you have hanging on your wall this picture? The footprints poem. You heard that? Lord, you promised not to abandon me. Why are there only one set of footsteps there? Those were the moments that I was carrying. Someone once said, you see that kind of trenched out area? That's where God was dragging me. Did Jesus know this poem? Because what you see in Mark and Matthew and Psalm 22 does not sound like God is carrying him. It sounds like God has abandoned him. Or what about Romans 8, 28? Just hang on, Jesus. You know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord. 
Why have you abandoned me? How do you match that text with Romans 8? Okay, if Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22, flip your Bible over just one chapter. And how do you get Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 to match? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And Jesus says, God, why have you forsaken me? It is something of a theological crisis. And it's not the first one you encounter in Scripture. Part of me is glad that the people hearing Jesus that day misunderstood him. You go back to Mark, you go back to Matthew, and when Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, by the way, Mark says Eloi, Matthew says Eli, and people say, why the difference? Matthew is quoting the Hebrew, Mark is quoting Aramaic. That's the only distinction. But they hear it. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and someone says, maybe he's calling Elijah. Now, the gospel accounts is kind of ironic because Mark and Matthew have already told you Elijah came. He came in the form of John. Jewish theology said that Elijah was going to come. You read it in Micah, you read it in Malachi, that Elijah would come just before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And they thought that's what Jesus was doing, calling on the Lord, calling on Elijah to save him. But part of me is kind of glad they misunderstood because they're crucifying Jesus because they think that God has rejected Jesus. The reason you hung a man on the cross was because you suspended him between heaven and earth as though he were fit for neither. God doesn't want him. We don't want him. And what if they heard Jesus say, why have you forsaken me, God? They said, see, he's conceding our point. God has forsaken you, and that's why you're on the cross. You read the book of Job lately? The crisis of Job is the crisis of this moment, too. Job was a blameless, upright man, one who feared God, shunned evil. He was rich, he was loaded, seven sons, three daughters, lots of camels, lots of sheep, lots of goats. Satan comes and said, he's only doing that because you've bribed him. And God says, you can take it all away from me. And what begins to happen in the book of Job, if you've read it recently, is Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, Job's three once friends, begin trying to explain why Job is suffering, because suffering, quite frankly, makes no sense. And they're trying to make sense of it. Job, the reason this has happened to you is because you've obviously done something against God to offend the Lord. Your kids, who you claim are just great, sterling, upstanding citizens, the reason they died is because they sinned. And Job, if you would repent, God would give you your stuff back. And Job keeps saying, I haven't. Nothing, nothing like that has happened. God, why are you letting this happen? Jesus isn't the first to utter these words. But it's a theological crisis. Why have you forsaken me? But the remarkable thing in this moment 
said, he says, my God. I didn't know this before I was preparing for tonight. This is the only time in the gospel accounts that Jesus refers to God as God and not as Father. Everywhere else in Scripture, it's always Father. When you pray, pray in this way, our Father who art in heaven. I and my Father are one. But not here. God. But even though there seems to be that that set of distance it feels for a moment, Jesus still says, my God. Even though he asks why, and even though he feels forsaken and abandoned, Jesus says, my God. Why? It is a profound moment for the Son of God to ask that question. As one writer said, it's a radical expression of devotion to God which endures every, every experience, every adverse experience. That even though God has done all of this, even though it seems God has forsaken me, he is still my God. And that's where Jesus finds himself in Psalm, quoting Psalm 22. When you read the book of Job, one of the interesting things is that Job comes to God with a bunch of questions. God, why would you let this happen? God, why is it that you let the righteous suffer while the wicked prosper? There's even a point in the book of Job, Job 38, 39, where Job threatens to sue God. You know the problem with suing God? How do you find a lawyer to take that case? That's kind of Job's point. You know what I've always found fascinating about the book of Job? Job says, God, I would sue you, I'd take you to court, but nobody would take the case. And, and besides, if you were to show up, God, you'd just intimidate everybody. God shows up, and people are intimidated. But then God begins asking Job questions. God never once answers a single question of Job. Instead, he asked Job his own question. Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I can't hear you. Speak a little louder. Job, do you know where I keep the storehouses of rain? Do you know where the mountain goats go to breed? Do you, can, can you feed the Leviathan and the behemoth? I can't hear you, Job. And for the book of Job, it's a profound moment. When I talk about Job and I teach Job, I always tell people that I think the focus of the book of Job is, I don't need a God I can understand. In fact, I don't want a God I can understand. But I need a God I can trust. But with Jesus, the remarkable thing about this moment in Psalm 22 and this feeling of abandonment is that he knew what was coming. 
He tried to tell his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again the third day. They didn't hear him. They were all busy arguing who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Notice sometimes, every time Jesus seems to tell them he's got to go to Jerusalem and die, they're always arguing who's going to be the greatest. It's as polar opposite as you can get. So why does he ask the question? If he knew that this is where it would lead. His devotion to God, Paul would later say, he was faithful to death, even death on a cross. And Paul will later describe in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In that moment, every sin from the first to the last, every sense of pain from the first to the last, every feeling of rejection, every feeling of dejection, every sense of the fallen and broken world was right there on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. sometimes sing, the Father turned his face away. The remarkable thing about Psalm 22 is both in how it begins and how it ends. It is a message of utter triumph that leads you into the 23rd Psalm. The one who cries out in Psalm 22 and verse 1, Why have you forsaken me? Celebrates the victorious kingdom of God at the end of the same text. And it just may be that when Jesus uttered those words, as someone once said, that he was so immersed and so, so accustomed to the language of Scripture that in this moment of feeling forsaken, those are the words that come out. I'm not going to stand up here and try to explain to you somehow tonight that what Jesus was saying was just some, some sort of cleaned up way of just read the rest of the psalm. I think that Jesus fully and utterly went through hell. If hell is described as the absence of God, Jesus is feeling hell in this moment. Because every force of hell had been thrown at him. And he took it and was obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Isaiah would explain in chapter 59, verse 1 and 2, Look, your sins have separated you from your God. Your iniquities have caused him to turn his face. And at that moment, Jesus was every bit burdened by every sin you and I have ever committed. And the remarkable thing 
about that is. He didn't have to do it. Matthew will tell you earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, when they come to arrest Jesus, he says, don't you know that I can call legions of angels and they would deliver me? He didn't do it. Knowing what was coming and knowing this sense of abandonment that he would experience, he still went to the cross. Luke chapter 9 and verse 52 sets it up that Jesus steadfastly set his face towards Jerusalem. He knew exactly what was waiting for him when he got there. And he still kept going. And even in this moment in Mark chapter 15, when Jesus Jesus utters these words, why have you forsaken me? The Bible says that some people standing by the cross, they rush to get some wine and put it on a stick and raise it up to him. And in the ancient world, that was a way of trying to relieve the pain. And even knowing all of that, he did it. Paul would say, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There are two things I want you to hear tonight. One is, you may feel abandoned by God. And your prayer life should reflect that honesty. In humility and in submission to God, some of you have experienced horrible suffering. And it's okay to be honest with God. Jesus was honest with God. And the second thing I want you to know is he didn't have to do it. Knowing the full weight of every evil and every sin, knowing that that moment would come when he felt isolated and alone from absolutely everyone, he did it. And so this powerful image that Mark uses is of this conquering king who stands alone in the battlefield. I want to finish with a few thoughts before we extend the invitation. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Ernest Hemingway. It's a a story that uh, Hemingway was sitting around a, a table one day. It was a pub, I think they said. He's sitting there with friends, and he made this wager. He says, can anyone, it's often attributed to Hemingway, nobody knows, so if you've heard this story, and it may or may not have been Hemingway. They said, I'll make a wager, $10, that I can write an entire novel using six words. They gathered up their money, and they bet him the money. And this was his novel. Four cell baby shoes, never worn. You read that and it just rips your heart out. Six words. I want you to imagine tonight that maybe Luke, Matthew, and John were sitting around that table with Hemingway. And I can imagine them saying, I see your six words. And I can do it in less. But Luke steps up and Luke says, there they crucified him. 
four words. Four of the most powerful words ever uttered in history. There, a hill outside of Jerusalem. They, the Jewish people, the Roman people, the 21st century people, they crucified the worst form of punishment ever devised by humankind. Him. The innocent Son of God. And I can imagine Hemingway would be kind of put in his place and powerful story, and then I also imagine another gospel writer saying, I can do better. And all I need is three words. He is risen. That moment in Mark and in Matthew where Jesus cries, Why have you abandoned me? was because your sins and my sins were on his shoulders. But he's risen. He is vindicated and he is Lord. So in the name of Jesus Christ, I offer this invitation. Because he died for your sins and my sins, he did that so that you could be reconciled to God and not sense abandonment from God. And Paul said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he offers you his grace and his love, his compassion and his forgiveness tonight. And all you have to do is trust that he is Lord and submit to his life in the waters of baptism, where scripture describes baptism as your own death, burial, and resurrection. So that as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we raise to walk in a newness of life. And if you have been raised with him in the likeness of his resurrection, you too will one day be raised. God loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. And all he asks of us is that we look to him. If this church can pray for you or help you in any way in the name of Jesus Christ tonight, we offer this invitation as we stand and we sing. Lord of creation and Lord of my life, Lord of the land and the sea, you were Lord of the heavens before there was time, and Lord of all, Lord, you will.